Welcome to everyone who's listening in on Facebook, on our Open Table Facebook page. Um, my name is Victoria. I'm one of the residents at the Open Table. I'm on staff with our, uh, we consider ourselves a dinner church. So the Open Table is a community of peace and reconciliation in Kansas City. And um, we are committed to doing anti-racism work in our city um, and being a church that is not just calling out issues of injustice, um, and doing racial equity work, but actually taking, taking strategic steps to organize industries and have those conversations in our own spiritual communities and beyond. So if this is your first time listening in, welcome. Uh, we'll have more information about the open table after our conversation this evening. So um, I just wanted to put a disclaimer out there. Uh, we're gonna be talking about racism, the church and COVID-19 and how COVID-19 has really illuminated a lot of um, a lot of the issues of of injustice and inequity that we have all that we already have known existed, and um, but I also wanted to say that um, we are ongoing practitioners. So none of us are experts. We are practitioners. We're always doing our best to have to have conversations and be um, critically analyzing um, our own biases and therefore um, doing work in our own communities and. Um, and with our own church in speaking to these injustices and also again organizing and doing the work to dismantle these systemic systemic racism and injustices that exist so without further ado i wanted to introduce our panelists this evening thank you everyone for joining for jumping in on the call let's see uh daisha could, could you introduce yourself Absolutely. My name is Daisha Bush and I am an open table anti-racism trainer and I'm a bunch of other things too, but I'm not going to get into that. So hello everyone. Excited to be here. Awesome. Cecilia. Hi everyone. My name is Cecilia Belzer Patton. I also am an open table open table anti-racism um, trainer. Um, and like Daisha, I'm a bunch of other things too that doesn't really matter. Um, and so just pleasant, pleased to be here and pleased to be having what I think is this very important discussion. Thank you. How about you, Nick? Yeah, my name is Nick. Uh, he, him, his pronouns. I am also an open table anti-racism trainer and I'm the organizer for the Open Table Church. Thanks team. So. Um, I first wanted to ask, because I think it's good to always gauge how how we're feeling, you know, in light of COVID-19, um, in light of the conversation we're going to have tonight. So wanted to do a quick check-in. How have we been doing amidst this pandemic? So I've been doing all kinds of things. I think I've experienced every single emotion a person can experience. So I would say for me, um, I work at a um, community college. And so COVID kind of took a tack of this country right around my spring break. So I was already off work. So the inconvenience of how work would, you know, happen didn't really bother me, but just kind of seeing how fast it spread. I started to do my own little personal research by YouTubing and looking at, you know, what exactly was happening. Cause apparently it come from China and blah, blah, blah. And the videos that I watched was horrifying, like horrifying. And so when I was like, oh my God, like that's what goes on in a country that's called communist. I mean, they were like bullying people, forceful with people. It was just horrible. So I was like, oh, well, we won't be like that when it, if it comes over here. Cause you know, it was still this one or two people had it. So we really didn't believe that it was as bad as it is now. 
And then fast forwarding through all of that, New York was like, oh my God, like it was just horrible. And I'm like, why? And what I started to notice were the patterns. Like after it hit New York, it seemed like within a week or two, it hit somewhere else. And then another week or two, it's like every two weeks, somebody else became the victim. And so it got so out of control. Then I got a little scared, but was also encouraged. So that's what I mean by I've experienced like all the emotions. And so right now to answer your question, I'm okay. You know, on one hand, I'm hopeful, I'm a little numb. And I'm a little nervous because we don't have a cure and people are opening up restaurants and such. So I'm a little bit of everything. Yeah, I would say I, I'm feeling pretty, pretty fired up as of lately. Um, and, and much like you, Daisha, I've experienced like the full array of emotions that have come with this pandemic of like acknowledging the grief um, and sitting in that and choosing not to turn a blind eye to a lot of the realities that um, are just condensed and being exposed because of this pandemic. And also feeling a little bit of, um, feeling a lot of privilege around the fact that like I get to stay home and I still have a job and I don't have to risk myself by going to work and just sitting in that tension and, and being real with what that means. Um, and I also am feeling pretty fired up as a person of faith as well and seeing the ways that certain local communities and churches have chosen to respond to COVID-19 and chosen to um, highlight essential workers in the healthcare field, but not necessarily essential workers across the board. That's been really, really heartbreaking for me as well. And, and recognizing that um, the value of life is still not being, um, is still not being honored in a way that I believe it it should be even amidst a humanitarian crisis. So I'm feeling really fired up, um, especially in the last few days as I've been processing a lot about this. Yeah, same. I, I know one of the things that have that has really disappointed me about this is um, in different states how the specifically Christian churches have been using litigation and other like lobbying tactics in order to try to remain open, stating that it's like an infringement on their religious liberty. Um, that's been really frustrating, honestly, to see, to see the way that the church has responded to this in particular to me, um, to not only like downplay it, um, and, but you've even got like televangelists who are holding revivals saying that if they come, they, they will be cured, uh, of, of COVID-19. And it's just, it's, it's pretty nuts to see how this pandemic has been playing out in, in the Christian community. But I mean, outside of that, I would echo what, what everybody had said. It, it, it's, it's been devastating uh, to see, and it's, it's something where I think this pandemic has just highlighted the, the issues of systemic racism that have already been present, but, but the pandemic is now laying it absolutely bare for sure. Great. Um, COVID-19, the coronavirus early. And so um, I was on the front end of really feeling sad um, and had, was, had the ability to share that with Daisha and others about just this overwhelming sense of grief that I had around and recognizing that nothing would probably be normal as we've experienced it anymore. That in um, my 40 plus years, we have never experienced anything like this. So how can we ever think that it is a normal situation? And then um, going through the emotions of guilt as well of a person who has been able to be at home and work and that hasn't shifted my life a lot. 
and having a husband who is an essential worker who is not a doctor or a nurse or um, a healthcare worker and recognizing how much they have not been appreciated and how much people have not um, recognize that people do the things that they that we want them to do so that we don't have to. And so that has always been circling around with me, especially as a person of faith, of who we choose should be treated with dignity, who we choose should be valued, who we choose should be honored. Um, uh, and that has resonated with me a lot. And it has been a lot of my of my thought and it is reckon it's, it's beckoned me back to thinking about the least of these and recognizing how much the least of these have not been protected and how much that uh, systemic racism racism has played in where um, the COVID-19 coronavirus has been centered and who is getting most sick in in condensed places and so all of that is very it's important to me it's important to my life's work um and i hope that we figure out as we move back into spaces that appear to be more normal that we recognize that we are worth more than the normal that we left right that we could put in the work to create something new to create something um, where um, value is shared equitably um, Dr. William Barber, who is a founder, one of the founders of the modern day Poor People's Campaign, put out an article um, yesterday talking about that some of us have become way too familiar and too comfortable with who is um, dying amongst uh, this virus and that we're okay with it. And mm -hmm. I'd like to publicly say how okay, not okay I am with it. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Cecilia, for saying that. And I think, like, especially as people of faith um, who are also engaged in anti-racism work, which, which I think is often, it's a really big, well, I guess I'll just say that, that most churches feel really comfortable, like, staying at the status quo and, and, and speaking to systems of injustice from a place of, like, how these systems are complicated, right? So, I'll hear a lot about um, injustice being equated to complicated systems in our society when in my mind, like the way that I translated, at least as a person of faith is like every single life has value. And if every single life has value under God's eyes and we are all a part of God's creation, how, how, how is it possible that we're actually denying access to, um, for folks to have access to paid sick leave and for folks to have um, equitable access to, um, to systems that are going to better their lives. And I think COVID-19 has only illuminated the greater uh, disparities and gaps that exist. Um, yeah, and, and not knowing how to, like as how are we called to um, call that out in other in within our own community of faith and folks who are staying in the in a comfortable place in that um in that way you know folks that say that they're about the work but it's like you know you want change but are you willing to change right like we have to change our whole way of being in order to to be effective in in fighting for what's right and fighting for what's just um yeah so i i don't know if if any of you have had had conversations with 
with other folks of, of faith who have differed in opinion regarding like how COVID-19 has affected a lot of communities, especially communities of color. But um, I think in general, I would be interested to know what your thoughts are in terms of how the church has responded in light of COVID-19. Um, where have been some of the good responses and where have been some of um, the responses that lack seeing someone's full humanity? So I will say that in terms of um, racism and being a black female, um, COVID-19 is not any different than before it came and what it'll be like afterwards for, and I won't say that I'm speaking for all black people. I'll just speak from what I've observed and what I've experienced. Um, it, it's just, it's always something when you're on the bottom, let's just put it that way in terms of race. And so as you notice, if you look at um, the statistics and the other cities across the nation, because I don't know that Kansas City has caught up yet, every time something bad happens to our general population, it kills Black people. So, you know, while some people were experiencing, you know, their symptoms were coughing and sneezing at one point, and then it just flat out turned into if you have asthma or anything, which most people, <laughs> if you look at the statistics, are, are on the scale heart issues, breathing issues. I mean, you name it, it's like, oh, black folk. And then we threw in elderly. And so when you talk about a faith perspective, it's really interesting to me how it takes a horrible crisis for people to start acting like they love each other. When many of us have been suffering, regardless of the crises that come around, like 9-11 and now this pandemic. So I guess for me, the church in general, I'm excited. Uh, speaking personally with the two churches that I'm affiliated with, They've done everything they can to love on people. I mean, from streaming to um, my pastor, he sends out um, weekly, almost, it feels like daily, but weekly or bi-weekly messages. And he texts and emails out to the, all the congregation of, hey, you all stick with it. It's okay. We're getting one week closer to being able to see each other again. I mean, a tradition of African-Americans in general is relationship. I mean, relationship is very important over the economy, over our health even sometimes. And so it's, it's yeah, it's, I'm very proud that people are finding ways to reach out and connect to people even at home. What's unfortunate is when you talk about the elderly, which in the black church are like the foundation, <laughs> they don't have streaming and internet and Facebook live and text messaging and all of that good stuff. So there's a population that's being left out, let alone those who are poor that don't even have the technology to connect. So you hear a lot of people talk about the loneliness and the isolation, that lack of relationship. And although some of us are trapped, I mean, able to stay with family, that's driving us crazy too to some point because people want to get out and interact with others and love on other family, you know, travel and blah, blah, blah. So it's good and bad, but I just have to always default back to it's not any different. This is just one more thing that people who are poor and of color, especially, will have to deal with. So when you talk about Black in terms of race, Trust me, if America has a cold, we have cancer. I mean, that's just the way it's going to play out. One of the things that I have stressed with people when people have tried to slide into conversations, um, why they feel like um, Black people and other people of color, because it's hitting our Indigenous population really rapidly. Um, it's also hitting Latinx community um, disproportionately as well. And so when they try to, when people try to slide in, well, if people were taking better care of themselves, if people were not watching what they ate or people were doing this, what I have is, surely you don't think that we're going to talk about hypertension or diabetes or 
anything else if we're not going to talk about systemic racism. And I think we must talk about systemic racism if we're going to be talking about disparities in health. Um, and surely we're not going to do that to our communities that are being devastated. Um, while we don't have the numbers of a Chicago and a New York, um, we are disproportionate even here in the Kansas City area. Um, most of um, our positive cases in Kansas City are in third district followed pretty closely by fifth district. And on the Kansas side, Wyandotte County um, is quite um, high. Wyandotte County is actually one of the highest spaces, which has a density of both African-American and Latinx populations. And so I think we have to allow ourselves to sit in that COVID-19 and the coronavirus are not shifting things, as Daisha said, for most marginalized communities. What it is doing is shedding a light on what has already been a problem. And so I really feel like that in many ways, Many folks who are folks of color have been living in, living in, and continue to live in pandemic crisis, even now. Um, and what are the ways in which we are going to move into action, especially as people of faith? I think one of my deepest wounds of heart around um, organized religion is how much um, the church refuses to talk about that. How much the church refuses, in many ways, to be um, progressive around human dignity. Mm -hmm. um, it is amazing to me when folks want to go and mission in places all over the world, and of course we should, and don't want to mission in the underserved and undervalued communities right in where they live, because they're there, whether it's rural, whether it's urban, or whether it's um, exurban or suburban, um, there are communities in which we can mission in and we can pour into um, in the way that I hope that Jesus did, which is not with not with condescending, not with being con condescending, not with um, treating people like they're less than, but opening people up to their potential and their humanity. And so I hope that that is what happens as we move forward. I hope that we imagine and create a new way of being with each other um, spiritually. Yeah, there are a couple things that you said in there. Um... Cecilia, that, that I would love to piggyback on a little bit. One of the things that, that um, I think has been true of this uh, in the midst of the pandemic, also before the pandemic, um, is I think one of the things that happens is that there's not a strong systemic uh, analysis happening. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of individual blaming. And so it, like what we have operating is like within racism, the definition of it is that it has to be an individual, always an individual, right? That that has conscientiously chosen to do harm to someone of another race. So that's very individualized. And um, we have all these narratives that are out there coming from all different sources that are constantly blaming uh, people of color for the situation that they're in and totally ignoring the larger systemic analysis. And the thing that, that really makes me sad and mad about that is that if you look at the, the life of Jesus, like what he did, what he was killed for was speaking truth to systems. Like he came right after the, the, the social, political and economic powers and they took him out because he did it. And whenever you saw Jesus one-on-one -on -one individually, 
there, there was no blaming there. The harshest words were always directed towards those in power and the systems themselves. And so that, that's been a really frustrating thing to me because I, I feel like that, that, is, that is what's happening even in the midst of this pandemic. Like initially uh, by calling it, you know, like the, the, the Wuhan virus and then uh, by blaming people of color for having hypertension and diabetes or just the elderly for being elderly that suddenly like, oh, that's fine. They, they had it coming to them. Like that, that is so dehumanizing. And, and as a person of faith, I, I can't, it's just really difficult for me <laughs> to see how folks can get there. And, and it's, it's just, for me, yeah, I'm, I'm all for like the church needs to get active in waking people up to the, the economic order, the political order, the, the economic order, the way that systemic racism plays into things, because it will reorient uh, the way that we view things like the pandemic and also things like systemic racism. I don't see people being willing to do that to a real serious deep dive, to be honest with you, Nick, because I jokingly, you know, share with some friends that as an African-American female, Jesus is black to me. And even in this country, Jesus has always been a blue eyed blind guy. And so when you talk about they sacrificed him for going against systems, I would say they sacrificed him because he was like me. He was a minority. Everybody thought he was inferior. He was a carpenter's son. He was a nobody. And he ended up being the best thing that could have happened to any human being, at least according to the Christian faith. And so when you talk about faith and church, that is what gets most of us through when you know that it's not going to get any better. You know, it wasn't good before. It's not good now. and It won't be good later. So that is a representation of, you know, when they say um, one of the verses, and I don't know, I'm not a pastor, so I don't know verses like that, but it talks about um, Jesus' disciples saying, hey, I want to go where you go, and he's pretty much like, are you sure? And so that's what many of us are following. If you follow him, is it, life and everything else is coming after you, even to the point of the God that we all love was sacrificed. So if he was sacrificed, why do we think it's going to be any better for us? And so I hate to sound so negative. But that hope that faith brings is the one thing that keeps us going, but it's also the one thing that oppresses us. And it's a really interesting paradox because both good and evil have to exist in this situation. And so in this, in this pandemic, you know, people are dying. Funerals are happening. People are leaving, losing loved ones and can't even be in space, you know, with a limit of 10. Well, when you're not a relationship type of group, that's no big deal. You just say, oh, well, I'm being healthy. I won't go. But for those who love relationship and it's a key person in their family, that is torturous. That is traumatic because you've already been separated and beat and killed. I mean, that's what I mean by this is just one extra thing to add to it. So but I hear exactly what you're saying. It's just even in the God that we all say we serve, depending on your identity, especially as we talk about race, how we see Jesus is even different. I don't see him as this big time guy that everybody loves. You know, it reminds me of Martin Luther King. Everybody celebrates him now, but they really hated him when he was around. And so here we are later on making him this big, huge thing and people are wearing crosses on their necks. And do you know what that means? Like that wasn't a good thing. And so it's just, it's just a lot, but absolutely I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. James Cone talks about how it, it's not necessarily in, in uh, it's not necessarily that that we're that folks who follow in the footsteps of Jesus are, are seeking to end up on the cross. But that's just the natural way that it will go as you follow in Jesus footsteps. So the, the question then is, like, are you going to follow in Jesus's footsteps? 
knowing that that's where it will take you as you stand up to the powers that be um, and, and trying to essentially create a more like help co-create a more just world <laughs> where, where uh, everybody has enough resources to survive and thrive. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Like I think something I've been wrestling with personally, just in general, you know, COVID-19 just kind of illuminates a lot of this, but my own personal faith and not wanting to identify with the Christian faith because of the way that um, our nationalist American, American like way of life, you know, folks that people have, people that have chosen to really attached to Trump's rhetoric and, and what he, what he stands for are a lot of like evangelical conservative people and what their, the rhetoric and the ideologies that they carry are absolutely opposite to um, the faith tradition that I hold close to me. And so, you know, I just see that being illuminated with COVID-19 and the way that folks are fighting for their liberties um, and thinking that all of a sudden their rights have been taken away because they've been forced to have a stay at home order and they want businesses to open up. And so there's this big economic push. Um, and, you know, I think about how it just it just perpetuates the thing, the exact thing that we've we've been seeing for so long, right? It's like people that wanna go get their hair done and go get their nails done. Like, well, who who are all of these low wage workers that are actually serving the population, right? Black and brown communities who are being affected. And it just, it's really, it's disheartening for me as someone who, who um, follows the Christian tradition um, because it it's, it's hard to continuously um, fight for a different, for an alternative narrative in that tradition. Um, one that does include um, the restoration of, of uh, human dignity and one that does include fair wages and one that does include like a radical, but yet simple way of living and being, right? Um, so yeah, I, I'm just saddened by how, how our president's rhetoric and the people that do follow him continue to push this specific narrative um, that in my opinion is is not at all with the Christian tradition or faith. It's so funny. I was a part of a conversation about COVID and race. And I, that's why I'm so excited about this conversation because I don't have very many opportunities to talk about God and my faith and all of that. But one quote that came from that conversation was someone said there's an exact difference between, between someone being oppressed and someone being inconvenienced. And to literally ask for your liberty because you're stuck at home is just, just plain old devaluing and frustrating. And I could use some other words, but because we're trying to be Christ-like, I'm gonna keep it clean. But it is, it is, it's, 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 there's an anger that I can't even explain when you watch people do that. And then when we talk about racism, so you have these protesters that are out there with their guns and their mask, or maybe no mask, all together saying, hell no, we won't go, we wanna get our hair cut, we wanna play golf. And then you have people of color either um, in a party where it's more than 50 to 100 people being arrested. So help me understand what the difference is between those. And then you talk about the prison system. Again, if we're talking about mm -hmm. what Jesus was about, those who were hurt, those who were lost, those who need to be healed. Well, hell, that's pretty much all people of color is somebody that's poor. And that's not what the media is talking about. And I don't mean to hate on young people who are graduating, but that's not what we should be talking about. 
There are many of people of color who have been arrested and killed unfairly by police officers that'll never have a graduation either. Nobody's talking about that. But now during COVID, oh my God, what are we gonna do to make sure these graduates have a special moment? This is the most important. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is not a priority of life and death to not experience your graduation. Like get over it. I mean, I just, I don't get it. Like how we prioritize what gets shared and what doesn't get shared is just crazy. And when I'm watching it, I don't even watch the news anymore because I'm tired of all the happy smiles and the good talk and the, oh, you know, people singing from their balconies for the essential workers. Like, guess who else are essential workers? Postal workers, people at Amazon who are saying you should give us hazardous pay. Like we can't have this double standard of that thing that feels comfortable and looks great, we'll talk about. And then everybody else just kind of figure it out only 30 something percent of us are able to work from home. That means 60 plus of us are out there in the danger zone, taking stuff back to our families. Like it's just this double standard that continues to move forward and people waiting to see them. Like for example, churches who are streaming and reaching out to people because they can't be in, in space together. You don't see any black churches. It's always the white churches. Oh, look at them loving on each other. It's almost like white people are the only ones that can love on each other. I'm like, I'm so tired of it. And don't get me wrong. I love white people, right? Right, I do, but dang, I mean, can some Hispanic and some Asian and some black and some Samoan, I mean, just name it. Can many people, not even Christian religion. How about some Muslims and some, I mean, I don't, atheist crap, I don't even care. But this whole one message that continues to be pushed forward, it's just, it's just very, very frustrating when you're somebody like me who's just hoping that you can see a story that has some relevance to how your group is surviving through this mess. Yeah, that's good. So, something that you had mentioned there reminded me um, this last Thursday, there was a conversation about um, COVID-19 and race, and it involved uh, Resma, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, and Robin D'Angelo, from, uh, who wrote White Fragility. And in it, one of the things that Robin D'Angelo had said that I thought were was really really important, uh, and this was in reference to the Operation Gridlock folks, like some of the protests that were happening, the whole Liberate Michigan kind of thing. She mentioned when, ref when referring to these protests, she said that what, what, what it's referring to is like this sense of like, I'm entitled to pleasure and I'm entitled to the economy over and above the, the, the health of individuals. So it's like, yeah, I wanna be able to golf. I wanna be able to, <laughs> Um, get my hair cut, what, what have you. But what, what they're essentially saying implicitly is that my right to pleasure and, and my right to be able to go out and explore the economy in the ways that I want to is more important than your health. Um, and which they, I thought was pretty powerful. I think it's very powerful. And I think that not only in Michigan, not only in Jeff City, but also right here in Kansas City, there was a 200 person protest like the second or third week on the plaza of people saying we need to reopen the economy and of course i think everybody wants to reopen the economy and how do we do it where we do not put profits over people that we put people first and um that has been that has been heart-wrenching for me to see people's inability to sit still um, to sit still and know that God is God and to sit still and be um, in space of recognizing we're doing something that is um, a gift to be able to flatten the curve, to be able to do the things that we do 
so that um, we are not um, so that we're helping each other to be well and to be healthy. And when you talk about messaging from God, if you're a person who believes in messaging from God, what makes it so like scary and also encouraging is the fact that it's global. Like this isn't just a mm -hmm. USA thing. Like this is, I mean, it's, this thing is hitting up everybody. And it's like, what is the message, God? Like, what are you trying to tell us? And so back to Cecilia's point, slow down. Like, what are you doing? I mean, I will say one thing that I love about this experience is watching us almost go back, like back in the day. You know how people say like back in the day. So you see like drive-ins opening up and offering, you know, unique ways of allowing people to be in space, but still social distance. You see that stores are now closing by eight o'clock. It's not this 24 seven busy, busy, busy going on. You know, people are having to cook for people and provide them on the spot food as opposed to just letting it sit there and everybody just sit there and talk. I mean, so so I'm enjoying seeing how we're going back to that tribal type social take care of each other type of space. But it's unfortunate, again, that something like this pulls that in with us, you know. Yeah, so we, we've got some we've got some comments and questions coming in from Facebook Live. So um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead. And, yeah, I'm going to ask one of the questions here. This comes from uh, Angela Martellaro. Um, I've heard some well-meaning white people express concern about how black people and other people of color are at higher risk for COVID-19, but it still turns into forms of victim blaming. Like, don't they know they should be wearing masks, et cetera. Can you all talk a little about, a little about what an anti-racist response to that disparity could sound like? And so this is piggybacking off of something that we had talked about a little bit earlier in the conversation, but would someone want to take that? You know, I find it very interesting that that is people's perception. Um, because it has been my perception um, when I have been out, I shared um, Daisha and I walk. Um, we've walked in places where we have social distanced and where we have worn masks. And as being some of the few people of color there, we are the only people social distancing and the only people wearing masks. And so I find it interesting that there's this perception that um, marginalized communities are not taking care of themselves when I actually see that it has been dominant culture communities that have leaned into what you were talking about earlier, Nick, that um, entitlement of pleasure, entitlement of space, entitlement of place. And so I think that uh, one of the, the tools that I have been using people to think differently is inviting them into another way of different, of another way of thinking, inviting them to actually observe, inviting them to look and see where they see that happening, or is that a projection of a bias that is coming through? Mm -hmm. So um, to invite them to, um, how many people have you actually seen that are people of color that are not masked? How many people are dominant culture that you've seen that are not masked and vice versa? To get people to interrupt that um, level of implicit bias that really is not logical. It is not anything other than a lot of things, but um, I don't wanna say it's racist. I wanna say that it is people's inability to see beyond themselves. And so um, I think that there's a way of inviting people into thinking differently. There's a way of inviting people to actually not project what they believe to be so, but to level that in fact and to level it in um, 
if they if they find that 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 they do believe it's true, well, where? Well, how many? Right to continually to to deconstruct that train of thought so that people can come to a true or factual based reality. And I want to speak to the double standard. So it's interesting to me that as we talk about racism, the question is. Why do we think that people of color are not masked? But no one's speaking about the president or VP not being masked, that they voluntarily told their whole country that I'm not going to do this. So President Trump says it out of his mouth. I'm not going to do it. And then the VP shows up at a hospital with no mask on when the doctors and everyone else is wearing it. So if an African-American person or person of color says, I'm not wearing it because the president's not, how surprised would white folk be to that? But if white folks say, I'm not wearing it because the president's not, it's like, oh, we get it. We understand. I mean, again, the double standards. And then the fact that typically African-Americans, especially if you're poor, who has access? Where do you get a mask? They ran out. They've been gone for months. It's just now on the shelf. If you don't have money, you've lost your job, and you're an essential worker in a job that will not provide that, where exactly are you out there handing over the mask? Are you providing masks to these populations that you see a lot of? I mean, again, you all, the double standards. We have been so conditioned to see certain groups of people as inferior that we don't give them no benefit of the doubt. And when we talk about Christianity, if we don't have the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, we cannot judge. And that's a very judgmental way of seeing things. Now, I'm not blaming anybody. We all do it. I do it, too, because I'm telling you, I feel some kind of way about those protesters, you all. You know, really, your liberation? Like, come on. People are being jailed unfairly. People are being killed. Have you seen a Black man with a mask? You think people are scared of him when he walks without a mask. How do you think he looks with the mask? And men have been escorted out of stores for wearing masks. So imagine a black man with a mask going in the bank. I'm just saying. I mean, come on, and let's think about the dangers of even wearing a mask and then the danger of not wearing one. Yeah, it's like a, a damn if you do, damned if you don't. Right. Absolutely. And imagine a black person going to protest into a governmental body with a gun. And imagine how that would have played out. And I think that we are seeing. Um, our racism on full display to the world. And that has been another heartbreaking thing for um, the global response to how the United States has, um, with our leader, has moved forward in this. Um, and I saw a gentleman who is an Irish journalist um, on MSNBC, and he had done a, um, a verbal um, column in which he talked about the pity that he believes that most of the global um, community has about the United States and the ways in which we have been in, unable to do the things that we need to do for each other to ensure that people are well. Um, to He talked about the pity that people have that folks that have places of influence have said, maybe it's okay that children go back to school because you know kids are going to die and there's a natural population control and um we have people that have influence that say things like you know um 40 000 people die a year in car crashes um as if that is a a usual comparison it's like comparing apples and oranges because mm -hmm. car crashes are not contagious right <laughs> um and so I think that there is a way in which um, we have to directly speak 
And that is what I'm going to encourage my white allies and friends and accomplices to do, to move out of the discomfort um, and the entitlement of comfort, to really move into, to be able to directly speak, directly speak in the tension, directly speak to people who are saying things that are racist and inviting you to be racist with them, because that's what that is, right? Um, and how do we interrupt people's um, ability to try to pull us in to the systemic way of being. And just ask yourself, they're a human being, I'm a human being. What would make me make that decision? What scenario would need to happen in my life for me to make that decision? And that is your ability to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You're not always going to be right, but at least you're being sensitive to people believing that people know what they need to do to take care of themselves, even if it doesn't match up with what we think is right or wrong. You have to ask yourself that. What would make me do something similar to that? I mean, it's just, it's just a real simple question before we start to pass judgment on people because resources and access are not equal in this country. It is not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I one of the things, think, oh yeah, go ahead, Victoria. Well, I was just going to mention, uh, go off of what Daisha said too, and recognizing like we have to be willing to do a critical analysis of the fact that like our systems have been set up, set up as such that like not everyone's starting with the same access. And so you think about the experience of a white person walking through a grocery store with a mask on is going to be drastically different than a black person walking through a grocery store with a mask on. And there've already been several cases of, of people of color being harassed and kicked out of grocery stores when they're just trying to do their grocery shopping or get their essential needs during this pandemic. And so, I, Cecilia, you mentioned this too, like being able to ask questions to get to the root of why someone may have that bias or why someone has, has had that lens in which they've been viewing the world in, right? And yeah, I think, I think critical, critical analysis and asking those questions is, is a great place to start when you find yourself in conversation with someone who does say, you know, very blanket statements like that. Yeah, and one, one of the things that I was thinking of as well is like, uh, it's important, especially as white folks to, um, to not just fall back on the, the culture of niceness. Because um, mm. what that generally means is we don't come out and actually uh, get into that creative tension that is conflict, especially around this stuff. Because because what, what I hear everybody saying is like, yeah, we got to make the implicit explicit. And, and what I'm hearing in a lot of these responses uh, lines up quite quite well with the, the race construct uh, as far as assigning worth to lives. And so as, as we're hearing some of these statements come out from elected officials, from friends, from family members, like what we're hearing are, are basically value statements. Uh, based on one's racial identity. And, and so we, if, if we hear that coded language and we don't make the implicit explicit, it, it is allowed to just continue on um, unfettered. And I don't, and absolutely, Nick. And I think also to ask the question um, and to look at historical evidence that we have su that suggests this, if there were a dispar disproportionate amount of white people dying from COVID-19, would we have the same response that we have now? If there are a disproportionate amount of um, white mother's children or white people's parents and grandparents dying, would we have the same response? 
if um, we have this way in social, in social constructs that we have in the United States. When we had the crack cocaine epidemic in the 1980s and 1990s, that was criminalized, that was moralized, it was all of these different things. And here we are in the 2000s and the 210s and moving into the um, 2020s where heroin addiction and opiate addiction is an illness. And how different that is to not criminalize that in the ways that we've criminalized things before. And there's always a race line that falls through that. And so how do we not ask those types of questions? How do we not look at um, in a really um, critical, as Victoria says, way um, of how all of these kinds of decisions that um, move around value, that move around worth, that move around where we should be concerned or not concerned um, runs along race and socioeconomic intersections always in the United States. And so, um, yeah. And historically, Christians enslaved Black people. So the question I always ask myself is, how can I be so 100% about a religion that killed me and took great pride in that? And so again, when you look at the different perspectives that different people have of the same Jesus and the same religion, it is an existence of both evil and good. Because I would imagine if I could pass judgment on black folk and I were some other race, I'd say, hell, how are you able to love Jesus as much as I do when years back, my people enslaved, killed and lynched you? How are you so dedicated to church and religion the way you are? And again, I say, Jesus was like me. And so the Romans and the Egyptians and all those big time superior people were how I would see black people's, I mean, white people's role is in this country. And I'm not saying that you all are not as committed to God and the religion as us. What I'm saying is the perspectives and the life experiences are totally different. And we can't kumbaya this thing if we won't have real conversation. And so I really love the question that Miss Angela asked, because again, she was courageous enough to ask it, which is what Cecilia said to do. So I hope that, I mean, just in this conversation, you all, I don't even know if you realize the risk that I'm taking by putting my name on this and having a conversation, which I will assume is probably predominantly white than it is black. And, and you can Google my name and find me. Like, this thing is forever for us. This isn't just a, oh, today or Thursday. This is a 24-7, 365 generational thing. And it's, it's serious. And so when people talk about microaggressions, they're huge aggressions. But because you're the minority or the underdog, who cares? That's not an easy way to live. And so faith alone is what keeps a lot of us going. I don't know how people survive something like this without faith. Nick, we have any more questions streaming from the Facebook Live? Yeah, we definitely do. There's there's uh, one, this may actually be a good time to uh, bring this one up. This one comes from Jeremy Ruzik. So uh, he says that you all have been in this anti-racism work from a, for a long time. How much are you assessing new strategies for deconstructing racism versus sticking with uh, what you've been doing already and being consistent with uh, what has already been proven to work. Um, as has been mentioned, this pandemic only amplifies what is the reality, but is there anything new you are reflecting on or developing? Oh, that's a good one. That was like three questions in one. 
It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can count on Jeremy to ask those kinds of questions, like layered questions. I'll let I'll let y'all start with this one since you have been much more involved in the anti-racism trainings. Yeah, I mean it's not necessarily new, but I mean one of the things I personally have been reflecting on a lot lately is, is um, I've noticed that in me, um, I am very quick to want to present well um, as trying to be an anti-racist, uh, and I've recognized that. Inevitably, I'm imagining for everyone who is on this journey, um, we are going to encounter that phase and it's not necessarily just going to like go away. It's going to pop up from time to time where it, it's mainly external, externally focused. And, and one of the things that I've been very interested in of late is understanding how not only in my own life, but, but how can I, I help facilitate this kind of internal shift with others uh, so that way we can really, really wrestle internally rather than just spewing facts and that kind of thing. How can it actually shift the way that I am at my core? And, and how can I then live out of that? Um, because th this stuff goes deep, racism goes deep, and it's not something that I'm ever going to, I'm never going to arrive at any sort of perfect analysis, but it's important that I don't just stay externally focused because then my propensity is to like lift up my own ego and center myself and to be like, look, I'm, I'm the most like woke person in the room. Um, when in reality, there's a lot of stuff in here that has yet to be even touched. And so how can I go out and say that when, when I, when I have all this stuff in here? So it's like, so what, what I'm trying to figure out now is like how, how to, how to move forward in humility uh, how to move forward in a way where I know I will never arrive, and how do I move forward in anti-racism, knowing that I'm never like th th there is no perfect analysis that I'm gonna hit bumps in the road, and I need community to help keep me oriented and grounded. And in that sense, it actually makes me think that it's a deeply like anti-racism work is a deeply spiritual spiritual work. Um, like I just similar to like my own faith, I don't think I'm ever going to arrive. There's always going to be bumps in the road and I need community. I think the same thing is true of anybody who's aspiring to be anti-racist, which I also think is, is deeply Christian. So those are some of the things that I think about with that question. When I think about like he mentioned history and what we're doing that's worked from past and what we're adjusting to for future. I like that question because historically, when you talk about racism, people always immediately go to the two bookends, black, white. But what we're trying to do as anti-racism facilitators, it gets people to say that we're all victims of this white supremacy construct that's been built in this country. That while white supremacy sounds like white people, it is not. Same race people that are of color are doing and exercising the same game that's making all of us victims. So as anti-racism facilitators, historically we are fighting treating people better or worse based on their race, the basics of what it means, but we're also moving towards a all of us are victims of this. White folk are victims of an oppressive belief that is not true. That is a literal lie that's been played over and over again for 400 years in this country. And so it's not the time to, to start proving ourselves. That's not what the role of people of color is to white people. It's for white people to say, wait a minute, this doesn't even make any sense. 
and to be able to go back to their own groups. That's another piece of it. It always seems like when you talk about racism, people of color are supposed to educate white folk and white folk are supposed to become in relationship with people of color and kumbaya. No, everybody needs to go back to their own groups and do the work. Black need to go to black, white need to go to white, Hispanic, Asian, blah, blah, blah. We need to go back and educate ourselves because who's going to hear the message better? Somebody from an opposing race or somebody within your race? So that's another one of those things that we're doing that I think is a little bit different. I think the fight of race is fluid, just like I believe the Bible is fluid. While it's concrete in its document, the cultures and the life experiences are different. And so we have to be able to adjust and move with that. What Jesus did 2000 years ago is not gonna be what Daisha does today, but the whole philosophy behind why he did what he did is what we have to continue to live on. And if we don't pass that on to younger generations, then we're gonna lose that commitment. And so civil rights is not the way civil rights was. It's something different now and we need to figure that out. So I love that question because there is hope and change, but Nick is absolutely right. I know I'm not gonna to get to it in a lifetime. I don't know how many life if they ever get to it, but it is a fight that people who are hurting have to fight every day. Because if you don't, guess what? You're gonna die anyway. So you might as well die fighting for people coming together and we need each other. And that's very important for us to realize we need each other. All races need each other because the people that are protesting with guns, I ain't about to walk up over there. I need Nick and Victoria to get their people to go talk to them because that's a danger zone for me. So we can't go into all spaces and we need to recognize how we need each other. I don't know that I am doing, um, you know, we know that there are things that work about it. We know that there are things that, that don't. We know that there are ways in which some people are going to move more easily and some people are going to not move at all. And so um, I have to be present. I have to be in the moment. I have to be willing to be boots on the ground and interrupt um, the internal racialized inferiority that works within me, I think is the boat is the most revolutionary thing that I can do. Um, and I think it's the most revolutionary thing that white people can do is interrupt the internal racialized superiority that runs through them. And to recognize that these constructs that we have made um, damage everyone. Um, it damages um, white people with delusions of grandeur and it um, damages uh, folks of color, BIPOC people with delusions of not being enough. And so if I can do the critical self-work of learning how to love myself as God loves me, learning how to then be able to extend that to others, then I have done a mighty thing. And that is what I try to do in um, disrupting um, a very racist system and a very racist culture. And that if I can love myself um, holy, H-O-L-Y, and W-H-O-L-L-Y, and believe that God did not make any mistakes and that God doesn't make any mistakes. So um, that all of this is an exercise, a spiritual exercise for me um, in my own wellness and be able to extend that to my family and to my friends. That's what I'm going to try to do. Um, and so that looks different on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it is not always good. It is a journey. Some days I'm going to take five steps forward. Some days I'm going to take 10 steps back, but I'm going to keep on going. And I think that that is what is the difference oftentimes in the willingness of interrupting power, interrupting um, access, advantage, and entitlement 
is that there are a lot of people who are unwilling to share out in that in order to dismantle all the things that we need to. Hopefully more people will come along with us and do so. Um, and hopefully we will be ready when they do. Yeah, I, Cecilia, to go off of what you said about um, recognizing like the holy within us and choosing to do our own work of like self-liberation, I think that's a huge part of where this work has to start in terms of, um, I, think, I think for me specifically, it's not just doing that spiritual work for myself, but also recognizing like if I am made in the image of God and I hold various identities um, not just as a first generation American, um, not just as a Latinx woman, but like all the various roles and identities that we hold, um, where, like, where are my intersections and where am I called to be consistently, um, asking myself critical questions that liberate myself inwardly, and then therefore contribute to liberating those around me and in, in community. Right. Um, so yeah, that's that that's what I have to contribute to that is I've been I've been doing a lot of um, just inward reflection on what that means as a person of faith and as a person of faith who is very um, not just passionate but think you know, I believe that it's my responsibility to um, to do this work of 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 justice and racial equity and and like restoring human dignity. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Nick, I know we're at about time, but I, I wanted to ask, like, are there any other, did we want to take one more question or you want to wrap it up here? I don't know how many um, questions are streaming in from our Facebook Live, so. Yeah, th th there's one more we can do, but I want to make sure folks are good to go with rolling a little over. Yeah. Okay. And Daisha, what do you think? Um, so this one actually comes from uh, Victory Edwards. Uh, she says, she's she's bragging on you a little bit, Cecilia. She says, Cecilia, I love the way you use language to interrupt microaggressions. I think she's referring to the, I, like, I invite you, like the invitation kind of language. Uh, can you and the other presenters give examples and responses from various religious microaggressions that you have experienced or heard, um, as well as from various, like, ethnic backgrounds? So. Could you say that again? Yeah, I think I think what Victory is 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 looking to hear is are there do you have any examples of responses uh, that that you have used to help counter or maybe get past the initial defensiveness that could come up in order to offer that invitation to think differently? Mm, okay. I think even from a perspective, I am admittedly a very inclusive Christian. I am an inclusive Christian that believes that um, my Jewish brothers and sisters and my um, Muslim brothers and sisters um, worship the same God that I do and that God loves all of us um, without, um, God doesn't know the difference between all of us. He loves all of us as if we were the only one. And, um, and so when I have often under this Christian um, hegemony that we operate on kind of globally now, I think that um, I have a hard time when there's an aspect of Christians who are not able to offer the same grace, offer the same um, idea of 
God loving our um, brothers and sisters that have a different um, religious uh, paradigm that they operate out of. And so I think that um, that is something that our communities must learn how to move through. Um, I think that we must learn how to shape and help people to see how much that um, Christianity can almost be over, not even almost, it is overbearing in society that we celebrate um, holidays that are Christian. We don't, as a nation, as a, as a world, we don't celebrate holidays um, that are not Christian, that we get off in the United States, our holidays in which we extend grace and vacation are around the Christian cycle. And so how do we, in our places where we are, interrupt that? How do we, um, as an educator, when I was in school buildings and I had Muslim children going through Ramadan, who am I not to say, surely we should be looking at certain things if behavior comes because a person is hungry or because a person is fasting, is because a person is able to um, participate in their in their religious liberties, or if we have things, I had Muslim students that needed to pray five times a day, and as an administrator, teachers complained about those students leaving the room for however long it took. And I would say, if you as a teacher cannot make um, impression on that student for the other 55 minutes that they're in your class, for them to be gone five minutes, then we need to be looking at that and not at the student, right? So I think that it has to be a practice of thinking about um, oftentimes, maybe not the first time, but before things happen, of ways in which we can decide that we are going to lean into the microaggressions that people face daily, um, oftentimes multiple times a day. Um, and decide that either we're going to be in alignment as um, allies and brothers and sisters in faith, or that we are actively or passively choosing to continue to build systems of white supremacy. And I think that that is the bottom line. Either I am actively dismantling or I'm passively building. And I want to be actively dismantling. I think for me, I just practice what I preach. So what I mean by that is, I try not to pass judgment on people because I ask myself, what would make me do the same? And so when a question is asked, if someone of a different religion or no religion at all asks me a question, I actually get excited because it's not very often I get to talk about my spiritual and religious connections. But there are a couple of few philosophies that I live by when it comes to difference coming into my face, whether in a negative way or a positive way. One thing is what I do in my house is for me. I can't judge you for what you do in your house. I just have to assume that you're doing what's in the best interest of your life and the people that you influence. And so whether it's a different religion or a different ritual, I'm not gonna pass judgment on you because I assume it's just as important to you as mine is to me. The other thing is, and at least in Christianity, is nothing wrong with being in fellowship and relationship with opposing religious views. Um, not only do I have a best friend that's Muslim, but I am always excited to join in and experience different things. I am not threatened by experiencing and being exposed to other religious practices because I know where my home is. And so I say that to mean that 
in the Bible, it says we can be in the world, just don't be of the world. So whatever the world is for us and our religious beliefs, just because I support you and I respect that it does amazing things for you like mine does for me, does not mean you may not catch days hanging out with a bunch of people from a different religion. No, it doesn't mean I've been converted. It means that I love relationship and I love to learn and I respect people's differences. And then the other thing is, it's all about relationship. I mean, Christianity in its right way is about loving on people. Conversion doesn't happen if you're not loving on people. Building those relationships and understanding where people are coming from doesn't happen. Going around thumping the Bible and speaking verses is not how we be in relationship with people. And so I don't know that too many uh, microaggressions would offend me because, again, people are coming from a hurt space. And if they're coming at me angrily, especially when they don't know me, there is something else going on. And that might have a little bit to do with my counseling skills, too. But I'm just saying. So, yeah, I'm not easily offended when people ask me questions. Now, if you try to physically do something to me, that's when my Christ-like behavior turns into more of a, okay, I'll just stop there. Okay, thanks. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, when I, when I come across conversations with folks and I hear microaggressions, you know, there's obviously like the initial reaction in my body of like, oh, that was not okay. And I get fired up. Um, and at the same time, like Daisha said, like recognizing that people are often like, people are often a projection of like an inward, like whatever's happening inwardly. Right. And so I've, I've tried to shift gears into like asking a question around like, you know, if I'm to be, if I'm in like a confrontation with someone, or I'm having a conversation with someone asking a question, like, what do you fear? Or like, where does it hurt? Cause obviously like these very, these, these statements, these microaggressions um, are coming from a place that like, there's more going on within you and it's being projected now onto not just me, but the world and the way you see where the like you need to dive into that work um and so that like offering that that as an invitation has been the shift I've been trying to make not always easy <laughs> sometimes it's easier to um or not just easier but sometimes like initially I just want to react out of out of like my emotional place I'm like you know and sometimes I I think that's actually like righteous anger is is a thing like it's a thing that we have to also acknowledge in ourselves when we're seeing so much injustice happening around us as well so um I really like asking questions. I think it invites a further conversation. So that's that's where I always try and start. One of the things I think about with really all of this is like, we're talking about a couple different threads here. So there's obviously the systemic piece that we need to be addressing systems. And then now with like the, the conversation piece, it, this is like kind of the long game, like the hearts and minds campaign of uh, figuring out how to invite folks into a different way of thinking. Uh, but both have to happen. And one of the things, uh, be, one of the things that I've struggled with is uh, I have historically been petrified of conflict um, growing up. I, by the time I met Sarah, my, my now partner, <laughs> um, I got it down to about 48 hour response time from the time that something like did something in here and the time that I mentioned it. So I, I'm getting a lot better. I think I'm to real time now for the most part. Um, but one of the things that ended up helping me a lot with inviting people into a conversation uh, has been nonviolent communication. 
And one of the things that that's done that, that I wasn't even really aware of is it helped me get to know who I am um, better as, as well as get to know the other person. Because the, the basic premise of it is like, you're, you're talking about feelings and needs. And so if, if someone says something that doesn't jive with me, how can I start with how that, how that impacted me, how that made me feel and what, what the unmet need is? And then can I express it? And at that point, I got like, they, they're going to kind of go and do their thing. And can I, in order to get past the initial defensiveness, because once anybody gets worked up, like this little part of our brain shuts off, and then we're not thinking very logically in that moment. So good luck on that conversion moment. Um, so so how, can, how can I then, uh, I'm not going to agree with the other person that, I, that I'm disagreeing with, but how can I state to them in the terms of feelings and needs, uh, what I, I hear them saying to me, so that way we can and kind of get past that defensiveness, so then we can have some honest, straight talk, and and, uh, and hopefully deal with like the microaggression or or whatever conflict was happening. Because I know for me, as someone who was a, a historic accommodator and conflict avoider, woo, that stuff changed my life. <laughs> so, so that that's one of the ways that I that that you know as I think of you know, doing anti-racism work with family and friends in order to not practice white solidarity, which is basically being in solidarity with power and with oppression. How, how can I, how can I break from that and actually challenge my family and friends and invite them in uh, to, to making another decision and to think about things a little bit differently? Um, while also like understanding where they're at and acknowledging where they're at but not, but not being okay with like that. You can't just like stay there. We're going to talk about this thing, right? <laughs> so that that's that that's one thing that I would say has been helpful for me. So it is seven fourteen. We said this thing is going to be an hour, and we're we're rolling. We're we're in it. So thank you so much uh, to all the folks on Facebook Live for uh, letting us know what you thought about the things that we're saying and the questions that you posed. Sorry we couldn't get to everything. Um, but thank you so much for tuning in and thank you, Daisha. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you, Victoria, for, for being a part of this tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, in, in closing, uh, you've been listening to the open table and, uh, if, if you like, if you like what we're doing, feel free to come and check it out virtually because we're not meeting, uh, in person. We're, we're in the midst of a series on eco-spirituality. Our, our next gathering is coming up this Sunday at 6 p.m. And you can tune in on Facebook Live or you can go to our event page. And uh, if you want to be more engaged, uh, you're more than welcome to join in on the Zoom call as well. Um, also coming this summer, we're going to be launching into a spirituality of anti-racism series where we're going to be exploring the connections between anti-racist principles and uh, Christian mysticism. So that'll be our summer long series that'll last for eight, probably eight gatherings. So be sure to stay tuned for that. So that's about it. If you like what the Open Table is doing and you want to support, um, feel free to do so. There's a donate link on, on our homepage at, at uh, facebook.com or you can give at theopentablekc.com slash give. And also someone in the Facebook live comments was asking about um, POC owned businesses that, that are doing good work in the midst of the pandemic, especially. So if you're interested in that, there is an infograph that's on our web page. Uh, it's also on our Facebook page and it's probably already in our Facebook live comments. 
but it highlights some different uh, POC owned businesses that you can that you can support. And I know that they would be very much appreciative of that. Uh, so some would be like mutual aid funds and other just operational costs. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation with us. And uh, be safe, everybody. Peace.